Noon, seven investors. It is Friday. It is a week until Christmas. So uh, feel free to, in the comments, ask me what I want for Christmas. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks Klein. You can call me Dan. My friends call me Dan. My mom calls me Dan. So I'm joined today by Steve Symington and Matt Cochran. Matt, how are you holding it up? We are having a, a cold wave. It's 61 degrees here in West Palm Beach. Not great. How are you doing out there in the, the Fort Lauderdale area? Yeah, it dipped below 70 degrees today. So we're just all struggling to survive, you know, trying to hunker down and get through this together. Steve Symington, do we have to send one of those rescue dogs with like the, you know, little barrel of booze out to get you? What are things like in Montana? <laughs> it's It's been in the high 30s. It's swimsuit weather and all everything's melting up here. So no, we're, we're good to go. Just a cup of coffee and, and a t-shirt and I'm golden. So we welcome everybody to this edition of 7investing now. This is an interactive program. When it works, uh wherever you are, you can make a comment and in theory we will see that comment. Uh we are happy to take them. Doesn't always work. We're still working on the technology here. But our top story today, we're going to talk about the state of streaming television and how to invest in it. And before we talk about streaming television, I think it's important to look at cord cutting. Cord cutting is the act of getting rid of cable. And when I say getting rid of cable, I really mean getting rid of a full price to the sort of traditional cable because some people who are cord cutting are also adding, say, like Sling TV at kind of a discount price. So there's absolutely shades of gray here. But cable only lost 120,000 subscribers in Q3. So there's a couple of options there. Is it uh, is that the end? Have we hit, you know, the people who are going to cut the cord have already cut the cord? Or is it that 1.5 million people cut the cord in Q2? So we're just kind of seeing squishy results. Where do we stand now? Uh, you would think by reading the media, by following along, that cable had fallen off some giant cliff. And that's not really true. There's about 82 million cable customers. That's down from about 96 million at the peak. That's down, but it's not the disaster it is. Now, you can make that number smaller if you want to say that about 7.5 million people have some sort of streaming cable, which is lower price, lower margin in general. Uh, so let me give you a little investing takeaway before you bring Matt and Steve here. I would avoid pure play cable companies. You don't want to own shares of Charter right now. And I understand that they're making up for the cable losses with uh, with streaming gains, uh, with people getting internet connections. That being said, there might be more competition with 5G. And we're still 18 months, maybe two years away from what this is viable. You aren't going to have the monopolies or duopolies on internet service. So I would not invest in a cable pure play. But Matt, now on to streaming. Who has an advantage in this industry? Streaming services, content providers, or distribution platforms like Roku? Well, there's there's different tiers to all of this, right, Dan? And so what I'm looking for in streaming services are content providers that hold leverage over distribution. And I think this battle goes to like top quality content providers first. Because if you're a platform, you just can't afford to be lacking must-see TV on your platform uh, because the minute I have to have more than one platform to watch all the content I want, uh, you know, or if that uh, all the other platforms are expendable to me, once I can get a platform that has all the content I want. Uh, now it matters how good the content is, right? And so I think, like I, I and I th think I speak for most people. I think Disney Plus and Netflix are are like the two at the top of this tier. Uh, you know, Disney Plus, they just get so much bang for their buck because they're putting out, they're going to be putting out Star Wars shows, Marvel shows, uh, you know, other other proven intellectual properties that they have. Uh, and, and it's proven. It, people want that. And, and Disney Plus numbers are already past their expectations. They just 
gave a gigantic rise to like their projections for Disney Plus uh, over the next few years uh, at their investor day uh, a week or so ago. Um, and and so Disney Plus is absolutely belongs on the top of that list. And also Netflix. I mean, they're just using that cheap capital to produce so much content right now uh, that, you know, they're just like almost overwhelming uh, the uh, viewers and put in subscribers with, with content. Um, now look, it comes in tiers. So like if you're Pluto TV, you're probably at the bottom of that tier because how many people really want to watch journey to the center of the earth and Hellraiser two, uh, but for <laughs> top tier content, um, uh, like top tier content, I believe has the most leverage because like, again, if I want to watch a Mandalorian season two, the finale, I'm going to get whatever I need to get, be able to watch it. Now, Eventually, I do think we're going to see a more symbiotic relationship between the platforms and content providers, a more established playing field like we see with the cable bundle. Uh, you know, so this is why deals like with Roku and HBO Max, you know, they were having trouble because uh, because so when I have the I still have the bundle and I haven't cut the cord. And when Comcast gets my $60 each month, a disproportionate amount of that goes to ESPN than, say, the Travel Channel. And I think we're going to see something like this breakdown in the over-the-top platform era eventually, where certain content providers get sweeter deals than others, and deservedly so. So exactly how sweet of a deal and exactly what some content apps belong in is what's being worked out right now. But for instance, HBO Max, they probably see themselves as a top-tier content app, and Roku probably wanted them to see them as more of a, a peacock. And in reality, HBO Max might be somewhere in between the two. But I think those things will eventually get worked out. Yeah, let me let me let me jump in, Max. Uh, Matt. So the uh, the problem here is, and it's something that I think is the next hurdle to solve. Uh, and I'll throw out something that that I think makes the Roku case even better is that right now, if I'm in Netflix, I'm in Netflix. I have to leave Netflix to go to Disney Plus. That's something that Roku's partner TiVo has solved. I have the fifty dollar TiVo streaming device, and basically, once I've logged into Disney Plus, Hulu, whatever the big services I have are, I have pretty much all of them. Um, once I've logged in, I can find all of my content and Sling TV, sort of all, you know, by by Google Voice Search. It works really, really well. I think Roku is eventually going to give you that platform, a unified platform, where you can say, "Hey, I'm watching a little bit of the football game, and then I'm ducking to uh, diners, drive-ins, and dives, and oh, my kids are here. Let's watch The Simpsons." And those are all different platforms. I think it's going to get a lot easier. The other thing you're going to see is you mentioned Pluto TV, and a lot of people have asked us about Viacom. Um, and here's the thing. I don't want to invest in the fifth or sixth biggest player. And I think that's a problem. Pluto TV can say it has 80 million customers, but here's what it has. Like you joked about Hellraiser 2. Hellraiser 2 would be premium content for Pluto TV. Mostly it has like manimal reruns and like stuff that like isn't on TV that nobody was paying for. And if you're like, if you really like that, like digital channel, that is like, it'll be channel 5.3. That's showing like Alf reruns and give me a break. And I don't know, maybe like if you're lucky, who's the boss episodes. That's what Pluto TV is. It's a nice little add-on business, just like the Roku channel. I don't think it's an investable business. You're going to have tiers, uh, and the top-tier players are where you want to be. That's both on the content side and on the device side. Steve, we're going to get to you in a second, uh, but I mm -hmm. wanted to field a question. Jennifer Smith asked a couple of questions that are way too political uh, for us to touch uh, about the news media. And I will say, I've worked at top-tier news media, and... 
nobody in the government is telling the news media what to report. Like when I worked at the Boston Globe, every reporter there is trying their damnedest to report the story. And that's even if the story, let's say the story un, unmasks a, a Red Sox cheating scandal, they're going to be sad about that at the Boston Globe. They're still going to report it. I think that is as close to handling your question as I can. We see lots of other questions. Uh, BFOF, the DNS uh, says Roku, Netflix, Amazon, uh, Disney, and Fubu will Fubo will be winners. I don't <laughs> think Fubo. I don't think Fubo will be a winner. Uh, I think Fubo is, a, and I know a lot of people disagree with me. They've marketed around the idea that they have some sort of unique sports content and they do if you want like greek soccer if you want like the fifth most important pro wrestling federation absolutely they have that most of the mainstream sports they have are available elsewhere someone on twitter mentioned uh the nhl to me i get the nhl network uh and you get you know if you have nbc access you're generally getting a good source of games and if you like a specific team uh you can get the direct access and follow that team's game but steve we're talking devices here. Is it fair to say everybody has pretty much uh, everybody has some sort of connected device for streaming? Well, um, at risk of not speaking in absolutes, let's, I mean, we can't say everybody, but it's sure <laughs> getting there. Uh, there was some research from, I think it was Leichman Research Group. Uh, they, they found 80% of US TV households right now have at least one internet connected TV device. And that includes, you know, smart TV, standalone streaming devices, Roku, Amazon Fire, TV sticks, set-top boxes, Chromecast, Apple TV, uh, or connected video games, systems, Blu-ray players, whatever. Um, but for perspective, in 2010, that number was less than one in four households had a connected streaming device. And, um, you know, right now they say that 40% of adults in US TV households watch video uh, via connected device daily. I can say that's true for us. And uh, again, you know, we're comparing that to 1% in 2010. So a uh, massive increase and, uh, you know, really um, several devices per household. So almost everybody has them now. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's only going to close the gap further uh, in the coming several quarters uh, because it seems to be accelerating at this point. Steve, let me ask one question here about, uh, you know, sort of the winners and the losers here. Do you think we're going to see some consolidation? You know, Matt mentioned a little bit like you pay more for, say, ESPN than you do for, I don't know, like the gardening channel. Mm -hmm. Is one of the fallouts here going to be that some content just goes away? Possibly. You know, I think it'll it'll exist somewhere, uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it will fade into obscurity. I think that's a, a fair thing to say. So, uh, yeah, when you when you think about, you know, old, uh, you know, MTV uh, in its old form, you know, there, there's going to be some stuff that just disappears uh, because there's no demand for it. And yeah, uh, yeah which is a little sad, but uh, it happens. And one, one of the negatives is that sort of in the socialist communist cable bundle, I supported your niche and you supported my niche. Maybe I like the cooking channel and you like the tennis channel and the two or three cents we each paid for that helped those channels come along. But I'm going to go to both of you here. I'll start with Steve. Uh, Steve, who are the big winners here? Um, I think the the big winners are the the companies that are winning already. Uh, I, I think your Netflixes and your Disney's uh, are going to take um, the lion's share. Uh, those are those are really big winners. But also, uh, you know, we can't forget uh, the the people actually supporting uh, advertising from connected TV. You know, companies like Magnite, 
which I think is up like 12% right now and quadrupled over the last six months or whatever. But uh, you're going to have uh, those those little companies that are supporting connected TV ads. And uh, of course, you know, your Roku's, um, you know, where you have, what is it, two and three uh, connected TV shipping right now have Roku TV built into them. And, uh, you know, there's there's going to be several uh, winners from this. But I think the biggest names only continue to get bigger at this point because they have momentum on their side. And, uh, and, and that should play out well for them. Before I throw to Matt, I'll throw out a loser. At my new house, we have Comcast. It's not a choice. Uh, it's, a, it's part of our, our HOA. And, you know, I was kind of excited. I, I downloaded the Xfinity platform. I, I looked at it. And the cool thing is you do have, like, your Netflix, your Hulu. It's all integrated. But it's a confusing remote. Everything was super glitchy and using those same channels through my Roku player worked better. Doesn't mean Comcast can't fix it. The idea of integrating streaming content into your platform is great, uh, but it doesn't work that well. And frankly, I don't think Comcast cares that much based on their customer service history. Uh, BFOF DNS follows up with us. Soccer is the biggest sport worldwide. Uh, All other streaming options are losing their soccer channels. I'm not so sure about that. Soccer is a very complicated sport. There's lots of uh, lots of deals uh, for soccer. Fox has soccer deals. There's always going to be a little bit of confusion uh, as some of these regional sports networks change ownership. The former Fox networks are now owned by Sinclair. There's going to be rights hiccups, but Please stop telling Americans that soccer is the biggest sport in the world. Soccer is a big sport here once or twice now at the Women's World Cup team, twice every four years for a few weeks. It is not an important sport. It is a niche sport. It is not going to drive. And that's kind of why I don't like FUBU. Uh, Again, FUBO. Uh, FUBU the brand I like just fine. Damon John on Shark Tank. Uh, But that being said, with FUBO, it's really building to a niche audience. It might be a good business. I don't think it is what it's selling itself as. You can get the NFL. You can get the major sports uh, on Sling TV, on Hulu Live, on YouTube TV. Uh, they're just not building around it as much. But Matt Cochran, what are your biggest winners here? I think uh, Steve said it well. Um, the, what, what I guess I would add to that is like uh, somebody the other day on Twitter was asking like, you know, uh, about Amazon and like how they can differentiate. And they differentiate by bundling it with Prime. And I think that's like a a huge advantage like someone like Amazon has where they can bundle it with these extremely uh, valuable other services. So I I wouldn't count out Amazon either from Steve's list. And all soccer fans, be sure to send your uh, hate mail to at worst ideas seven. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right. I played soccer. I'm a soccer fan. (laughs) I I have a favorite club in the Premier League. I'm an NHL fan. I'm a diehard New York Rangers fan. But a service building itself around those tastes, that's not going to be a massive service in the U.S. And might it be bigger globally? It might. But these types of services have not been as big in the rest of the world. Cable works differently depending where you are. Television works differently depending where you are. We're going to move to what we're watching. We're going to talk about... uh, Google's Google being sued or by 10 states. But before we do that, we're all a little bit tired because we just finished something unique to seven investing. We just did two hours of whole team calls where the first hour was just our members and they could ask us anything they want. We took them through how our site works. And of course, to become a member, you can join us at seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. Steve Symington, what did we do in the second hour? The second hour, we talked about updates to uh, each of us talked about updates to a couple of our most recent recommendations and uh, 
and basically some significant happenings uh, that have affected them and what we think of them now. Uh, we also talked about the companies on our scorecard that we believed are the most compelling now. Uh, so that's something we do every single month in addition to our seven recommendations. So um, just something that helps people kind of sift through the noise uh, when it comes to our growing recommendations list and say, you know what, we're really looking at these companies as well. So uh, it's a pretty, pretty fun call every month. And, and to see the growing numbers is a lot of fun. And that's the difference maker here at 7investing. So, and, and there's another question to that end, by sure, the way. Uh, is there a replay for members uh, in case they missed it? Yes, there is uh, a replay um, for members. We, we usually post that uh, on the following Monday. Uh, we do the calls on the third Friday of every month. The following Monday, we post it for subscribers uh, under our advisor updates section. So, uh, yes, there is a replay. You're watching Seven Investing Now. Let's move on to what we're watching. This is where every member of the show, every guest I have on, gets to bring a topic they want to talk about. It's usually financial, usually investing. But if Matt wanted to talk about his, you know, his efforts to uh, to bake bread, we could talk about that. I don't think that's a pandemic thing Matt's doing, but it is something a lot of you are doing. Matt, 10 states have accused Google of abusing its monopoly in online ads. Um, do you think this is going to result in anything real happen? Google does not have a monopoly, as far as I can tell. Well, so it's interesting, uh, Dan. There's actually there's four charges being currently brought against Alphabet in three separate cases, and I have to say, like Ben Thompson was uh, in, on his blog, Shatrekery broke these down, broke these uh, charges down uh, very well the other day on his blog. Uh, but for first, from the Texas case, uh, the first charge is that Google and Facebook colluded to give Facebook favored access to Google's ad network in exchange for not competing with Google. Now, like this is important because uh, the plaintiffs in these cases do not have to prove that Alphabet is a monopoly to prove that they're guilty in this because colluding like this is illegal. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're a monopoly or not. And, you know, there's the Texas lawsuit strongly suggests that they have documents that heavily incriminate uh, Alphabet and Facebook in this matter. Now, when you read through the charges, those were withheld uh, for the most part. So it, it's really hard to say, like, if, if they really are as incriminating as the plaintiffs believe in this case. Uh, but if if they did collude like that, um, then they're, they're going to be guilty and there will be a lot of charges uh, filed against them. Like Second, also from the Texas case, is that Google has a monopoly on web display advertising and acts anti-competitively to preserve its position. So... Google is kind of a monopoly here. I mean, they are uh, they're they're on the buy side, they're on the sell side, and they're kind of the market maker in all this. Um, and there's lots of examples and plenty of witnesses the plaintiffs could call in, in this case. Uh, Google is probably going to argue though that their ad prices continue to go down. That the the CPC, the click per customer, the the cost per click. I'm sorry, the, the cost per click continues to go down almost every single quarter. Matt, so let me, Google, jump, let me jump in here. How do they argue monopoly when Bing still exists? That's a Microsoft product, pretty big company. Facebook still exists. Uh, depending on your type of business, I could advertise on Yelp. I could advertise on, I don't know, Open Table. And I understand they dominate search, but there are still some pretty significant options where people are searching. I'm so, not sure how you get over that. Uh, well, when so that's actually a separate charge. Like this is going to be for their web display advertising. Okay. Like the, uh, that they offer. So that, that that's actually covered in another case. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, but this is just for the web display advertising and Google does represent the buy side, the sell side, and they're kind of the market there. But again, like Google's just going to argue that their cost per click uh, continues to go down. 
and that so there's no consumer harm here. Uh, that, that'll be Google's defense. Uh, so third, the Department of Justice case. Uh, this focuses on Google's deal with uh, Apple and a Android OEMs that make Google search the default search engine. Um, and Google is the default search engine, search engine thanks to its contracts. Uh, the search engine can be changed by the end user. Uh, but moreover, Alphabet, again, they're going to argue that these... The, 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 these deals benefit the user because they lower the cost of the device. Like they basically give Android away for free uh, just so as long as they remain the default search engine uh, and they pay Apple actually a, a lot of money to be the default search engine on iOS devices. Um, so again, they're going to be arguing where's the consumer harm here. And then fourth and finally, Dan, what you were talking about is that like uh, Google search, uh, you know, that Google favors its own properties and like the competition but again, the competition is only a click away, just like you were saying, Dan. And uh, like, uh, I would definitely see the court concluding that consumers uh, freely choose Google just because it's a better search engine, uh, and, and like that—that's the market working correctly. Uh, now, all these charges—they're undoubtedly going to lead to fines, um, and there's a possibility exists that they're going to have to restructure contracts with Android's OEMs and Apple as the default search engine. Uh, there's lots of pros and cons to this. Uh, like, for instance, if you're an Alphabet shareholder, uh, like Alphabet wouldn't have to pay Apple billions of dollars each year to be the default search engine on iOS. Um, and they would probably charge OEMs for use of Android as an operating system. Uh, but also, there's a reason why Alphabet pays Apple all that money each year to be the <laughs> default search engine. So, uh, you know, if you're an Alphabet shareholder, there's lots of pros and cons to all of this. That I'm 100% positive Alphabet will have to pay some hefty fines in all of this. However, I don't know if you're a shareholder, if this changes the long-term thesis. Matt, does the U.S. government uh, have to change how it regulates big tech? I I've always wondered if government is fit for this because, I mean, you've seen it in Congress. They ask dumb questions. They don't know what they're talking about. Is this something where the industry needs to take the lead and sort of form like a tech version of OSHA? Like, I'm not really sure what the answer is here. There needs to be some rules but I don't know where those rules should come from. Yeah. Well, I would say, I think you could go either way on that. I would say like, yes, the recent hearings of the past year or two did not inspire confidence with our political leaders to solve this problem. Uh, Google and I mean, Alphabet and Facebook, I think would love to see some regulations because as much as it might like hurt their bottom line in the short term, it would probably hurt the competition a lot more. Um, but it, at the problem with the industry coming up with uh, a solution is that Alphabet, in some of these cases, is almost the entire industry. So, um, like, uh, their competitors, I don't think, would uh, agree with, like, what they would want to put in place. Uh, so, we'll have to see what the government does about, about these regulations. And the other problem is, too, for Google, like the European Union... Uh, you know, every country they operate will have a different set of laws. So even if our political makers here in the U.S. come up with a uh, with smart regulation, which again seems like a long shot, um, like all the other places in the world where they operate uh, are going to come up probably with a different set of rules. And that's not Matt being political. That's the reality of, you know, you have people who are using a flip phone who are trying to come up with regulation for this. This is going to be an ongoing story. We've got a lot going on in Europe. I am sure we're going to talk about 
this regularly as we head into the new year. Steve, you want to talk about Robin Hood. Uh, <laughs> do I? <laughs> did, did you want to go the Kevin Costner version? Or no, of course, you want to talk about Robin Hood, the Men in Tight. So uh, and- Mel Brooks is definitely the best. <laughs> <laughs> Robin Hood has paid $65 million in a settlement over charges it misleads customers uh, as right. to how it makes money. It's important to know that they're settling something uh, that happened in 2017, 2018. They are saying they don't do this anymore. Uh, yeah. But uh, should people be wary of Robinhood? I don't love their promotion of day trading, but in general, as a platform, I've had no issues with with Robinhood. Your thoughts? Sure. Um, so I, I think actually the uh, the SEC statement said they were referring to misleading statements and omissions regarding how they make money uh, between 2015 and 2018. And uh, I think it's it's no mystery um, that they 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 did some kind of unsavory things as far as uh, as far as telling people how they did make money and indicating you know how much they were saving uh, with their zero commission platform. Now, bigger brokerage firms have kind of followed suit uh, in offering zero dollar commissions, so free commissions for stock trades. And uh, Robinhood kind of forced their hand that way. Schwab was the first one to take. Um, to take that bait and say, you know what, we're doing this. But uh, Robinhood makes most of its money for what's called payment for order flow. And um, they, the SEC essentially said, um, you know, that they cost investors um, anywhere from, I, it was like 30 to $35 million uh, over that, the course of, of that last year um, in money that basically you have day traders in there and they don't realize that Robinhood is getting paid for order flow and actually costing them a little bit of money by executing their trades at unfavorable prices. So uh, that was a that's a big deal um, because they didn't realize that you might be paying zero commissions on that. And it says zero on the dollar line, but you actually paid a little bit more for the shares that you're trading. Uh, that's a bigger issue for traders like day traders but we're not day traders so um that's i guess not really as much of an issue for us because i'll buy a stock uh one day and um and i'll you know hang on to it for years so it doesn't really matter to me whether uh this adds up and they're costing me a bunch of money but robin hood did agree to settle for 65 million uh civil penalty for them uh, basically they're not admitting or denying the sec charges but they're paying about double what the sec says they cost their uh, members. So um, they say um, that it's important to note that this is, you know, this was uh, Robin Hood of the past. Uh, this is how they used to operate and we're not doing that anymore. And, uh, you know, so they're saying they're not doing it. Uh, they're they're not misleading people like they were. Uh, so Robin Hood will insist on that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this is going to be important when you're talking about risk factors, when you're talking about a company. Um, you know, that might go public next year. Yeah, Steve, 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 let me jump in here. This is like a trust factor issue. So we're both married. In fact, all three of us are married. And I'm not sure how this would work in your house. But if you went to your wife and you said, hey, back in 2017 and 18, uh, I had another family. I was cheating on you. But don't worry. I... uh, I'm not doing that anymore, and I've gotten you this really nice gift. That might work, but I feel like if you're Robin Hood, there has not yeah. been an appreciable change of management. Um, if you were doing this then, kind of makes me think like you got caught, and you kind of apologized as best you can. You threw some money at it, but yeah. I don't trust you now, and I'm kind of not going to go back to trusting you. And uh, Steve, your thoughts there. I know it's kind of silly. Yeah, I I know they say, you know, they're, they're saying they're, they're, they're changed. You know, this isn't, this doesn't reflect us today. Um, 
but I mean, I, I wouldn't use any platform for trading, but, uh, with, I, I guess, you know, the one, the one leg up they might have is, is their, their fractional trading, you know, that, uh, I think eventually big brokerages are going to kind of follow suit there as well, uh, that they enable. So that's kind of handy. You can buy a piece of a company that has, you know, an otherwise seemingly high share price, uh, that might, you might not be able to buy a whole share of something. Um, and for, and so that's fine, but I, I just, I'm not convinced, you know, uh, uh, it's, We'll, we'll see, I guess. They're, you know they're going to be watched closely, uh, and they know that uh, th there's a lot more on the line as far as trust and further civil penalties if they continue this practice and, and uh, mislead people into how they make money. But uh, you know they've, they've updated all their disclosures and frequently asked questions and all that stuff to, to throw these risks out there and make sure that people know this is how you make money, and you may not get the most favorable trade, but um, that's a bigger deal for day traders than it is for long-term investors. More and more brokers are moving to fractional shares. Uh, fractional shares are great. You can own a little piece of Amazon. I have a Robinhood account for that idea because I use TD Ameritrade and they don't allow fractional shares. That being said, I haven't used it and I will probably uh, use a more established company. With that being said, Steve, I don't want to alarm you. If, if you have a dog, it's sleeping behind you. If you don't, <laughs> if you don't have a dog, I would be yeah. very wary of what's going on behind you there. Yeah, he has no idea what's going on. He just wants to be – He's not. he's got a bed right next to him too. For some reason, he chooses the floor. We are heading into the home stretch. Uh, before we do that, Deepa Patel says, I'm a new member. I would like to get more information on Friday calls for members only. Right. Once a month, we do a call for uh, new members, and then we do a call right after that just for members. When you join, in theory, we will send you an email that invites you to that call. If you didn't get that email, feel free to hit us up at info at 7investing, uh, and we'll make you sure – seveninvesting.com that dot com is important we will make sure we get you that information so you know when yeah. those calls are and uh, and something to note that uh, new members as of this morning are now we we've updated our welcome emails so that uh, you will get the email the links to the registration for the next call in your welcome email as well uh, so you'll get that right then you can register right away for the next call we do it on the third friday of every month that's something to keep in mind we just finished our calls this morning so we missed that one but we do offer replays as well uh, we should post a replay early next week um, for people to watch who couldn't make the call so and we do the new members call at 10 and the open members call at 11 a.m those times are of course eastern time uh, because more of us are in the eastern time zone uh, with three of us residing in florida apologies for that steve uh, yeah. We're in the home stretch. Uh, so guys, we are nearing the end of 2020. I know that sounds hard to believe. There's like two weeks left or 10 months, or I'm not even really sure, but the calendar tells me December. Hard to know this year. Um, what year-end investing advice do you want to share with our community? I'll throw something out for me. At the end of the year, that's really the time where I look at my portfolio and I see if something slipped through the cracks where hey, I own this stock, didn't remember I owned it. I don't really like this company anymore. Maybe it's time to sell. Uh, and there are some tax implications there. So depending if I'm at a loss or a gain, might decide whether I sell it at the end of the year or in the beginning of next year. Matt Cochran, what do you always do at the end of the year? Uh, the end of the year is always a, a good time to, to, to review your finances, your strategies, your savings, and things like that. The one piece of advice I would give to everybody and I think it's the most important part of investing is to think long term. This isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. Uh, you know, the goal is to get to uh, well, everybody will have different goals, but the goal is to just like have realistic expectations and to think long term. I think that's the best way to build wealth. Steve, your thoughts here. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll echo both your sentiments. Um, I, I think that's the most important thing is extending your time frame uh, for investing. Don't think about buying a company and should I sell it three days later because it's up 5%, you know, or, you know, down 5%. And I've gotten emails to that effect. Like, oh my gosh, this, this stock fell 2%. What do I do? That's not how it works. And uh, you, you, if you extend your time frame for investing and you think about owning pieces of a business for the long term, uh, it will drastically improve your returns and it will help you sleep better at night. It'll help you make better decisions as to what you actually buy. And uh, that's part of what we do at 7investing is we try and find good long-term oriented businesses and we do the research for you, present them in a comprehensive report. But do extend your time frame for investing and it will help your results tremendously. And members ask us this all the time. So, you know, they can see the stocks we recommended. Maybe there's one we recommended six months ago, and maybe it's up 200%. That's happened on a couple of stocks. They'll say, well, geez, is this still a good stock to buy? If we no longer felt it was a stock you should buy, we would let you know that. That would be noted on our scorecard. In general, even things that have been really, really successful, we believe they're going to keep growing. So I joked at the beginning of the show, Christmas is coming up. What do I want for Christmas? Here's what I want. I want to share investing with more people. So all of you watching, here's what I'd love for you to do. Tell somebody about 7investing now. Tell them about 7investing. Even at free show, even people who don't join, if we can stop people from day trading, from doing things that are bad for their finances and getting them to become long-term investors, then we're helping people. And that's the biggest thing we do here at 7investing. Guys, it is time to hit our finisher. Sam Bailey, let's bring up the graphic. Which of these retailers will have the best Q4? Dick's Sporting Goods wins at 34.8%. 13.1% said Macy's. 20.3% said Kohl's. 31.7% said Bed Bath & Beyond. Guys, Bed Bath & Beyond is not going to have a great holiday season. In fact, I would... Not be surprised if Bed Bath & Beyond is in the next batch of bankruptcies. They've been selling off things like crazy to raise cash. They've sold off a lot of secondary brands. I'm just not seeing that one. Matt Cochran, your thoughts here. I think I, I, I'm not sure, but I, I think I would go with Dick's there. I, I think a lot of people picked up uh, outdoor hobbies this year. And that like Christmas time is a, a great time to ask uh, for gifts like a new kayak or a new skis or a new tennis racket, like whatever outdoor hobbies they picked up. A good time to pick up uh, new equipment for that hobby. So I'll, I'll go with Dick's Sporting Goods. Matt, we just got an indoor skiing mountain in Miami. So I will uh, I will pick up some new skis. But yeah, I think. Uh, the trend for Dix is great, but you also have to think about the investments they've made. They have really put money into being an omni-channel company and, and building supply chain. And a lot of this, look, do I think Kohl's has a chance? Do I think Macy's has, has a chance? Absolutely, I do. But I think Dix is the clear winner. Steve Symington, I, I, I know uh, this might not be your space, but what are your thoughts here? Oh, yeah. It's 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 sort of in my wheelhouse enough. Um, I, I don't think Bed Bath & Beyond is going to have as bad a quarter as you suspect it might. Um, I, I think, you know, the the divestment of um, of cost plus world market is going to help them kind of hone their core brand, but I, I wouldn't have voted for them. Uh, but worth noting, I, I went with Dick Sporting Goods on this one as well. I think the, uh, the outdoor space is selling really well, especially during the pandemic. I think they're going to have a great holiday quarter. Uh, I don't own the stock and I don't plan on opening a position, but given the choices, I think that's that's where I voted on this one. I don't own Dix and I regret it. They're a company that has sort of pulled a Best Buy. They were in real trouble and they figured out how to turn it around. But it's, uh, again, one week until Christmas 
And we're done. That finishes up today's episode of 7investing now. If you have questions for us, you can send an email to info at 7investing.com. That is almost always Steve Symington. He doesn't sleep. So send those emails at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. He will almost certainly respond. Or, of course, you can reach out to any of our individual Twitters or at 7investing. We are all very active. I will point out, heading into the holidays, even though we're not really doing anything like a typical holiday, we might not be as quick to respond as normal. There's definitely a little bit more family time coming up over the next couple of weeks, even if that is just our very immediate families. Steve, what is your dog's name? My dog's name is Murphy. For Murphy, for Matt Cochran, for Steve (laughs) Symington, for Sam Bailey, I am Dan Klein. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you Monday. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.